So if first century Christians from Rome were here, what would they teach us? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to today's broadcast. I believe we're going to have a rich time in the Word, in culture today, getting practical lessons, growing together. So glad to have you with me. Welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire. I am here by God's grace to serve as your voice of moral sanity and spiritual clarity in the midst of a society and chaos in a church all too often in compromise. And friends, the key issue, the key issue For the health of the nation is the health of the church. Government's important. Media's important. Education's important. All these things are important. But the ultimate issue that's going to decide the well-being of a nation is the health of God's people within that nation who are called to function as salt and light. All right. If you have a question, 866-34-TRUTH. 866-348-7884. Any question... Of any kind, if it ties in with our subject matter here on the line of fire in general, do our best to get to a number of your calls today as well. Also want to give an update at evaluating some prophecies that predicted certain things by mid-April. We're a little bit further out now. We can better evaluate. And the left's attack on Samaritan's Purse, want to talk with you about that as well. Okay, let's start here. What would believers tell us from New Testament times? If they were alive today, obviously a whole different world to uh, (laughs) unimaginable. You go from then to now, just boom, in a second. Okay, but put that aside. Put all the cultural changes and all that aside. What would they tell us as far as the gospel? What would they tell us as far as our faith? What would they tell us as far as living as believers in in America? I, I know you're watching, listening from around the world, but in America, where we have a democratic republic, where we vote where we're so involved in political decisions, where, where hardly a day goes by where there's not talk about the president and the Congress and the direction of the nation and this and that, and, and it's something that we're constantly involved with as believers, and it's often on our minds. What would they teach us? I, I jotted down a few things that I think would be helpful in my new book that just came out, When the World Stops, Words of Faith, Hope, and Wisdom in the Midst of Crisis. I have a whole chapter titled, What is Church and How Should We Do It? Because right now, with the inability to gather together publicly, if we do gather, it has to be very small numbers of people. Uh, I'm hearing from pastors in different states in terms of the the onerous restrictions that are being put on public meetings and the the cleaning of the building and the amount of people and and all this and and what has to be done for health purposes. And and, uh, so we're in a situation we've never been in before. Uh, for us as as 21st century believers, where we, we can't gather together, we can't have our large meetings, we can't do a lot of what we're used to doing. So what would first century Christians teach us? One thing is this. I believe they would tell us that the gospel can spread and thrive regardless of leadership in the nation. In, in other words, that the Christians in the first century were under tyrannical Roman rule. They were often persecuted for their faith and even killed for their faith because they would not acknowledge Caesar as Lord. 
they, they didn't have the ability to vote or to petition the government. You, you had an absolute tyrannical leader who fashioned himself to be a god. And if you went against that, you could pay with your life. And yet, in that environment, without a godly president, without a godly Congress, without a godly Supreme Court, without any of that, all right, without God-fearing people in leadership as governors and, and as, as leaders in the, in the military, and then, of course, the, the, the Caesar, Nero, whoever was in at that time. Despite all that, the gospel grew and abounded, and the gospel thrived in so many ways and spread like holy fire through the Roman Empire. So I want to encourage all of you, don't get caught up in election fever. Yes, voting is important. Yes, we should be jealous of preserving our liberties. But I hope to be a broken record about this, just like I was during the impeachment. Don't get caught up with impeachment fever. Let's focus on what really matters. Let's be informed. Let's vote. Let's take advantage of the liberties we have. But let us keep it in proper perspective. The gospel can thrive in every setting. It has in communist China under an oppressive regime there. It has in a country like Iran under an oppressive Islamic regime there. The gospel can thrive in any environment. That's one thing I believe first century uh, Christians would teach us. Uh, Another is this. Persecution, as painful as it can be, as difficult as it can be, can also be a great blessing. Not just that we grow as individuals when we suffer for the gospel. Not just that we develop character and perseverance as we suffer for the gospel. But God can use it to spread the gospel. For example, in Acts 8, it says that there was a great persecution arose. This was after the martyrdom of, of Stephen and, and Saul of Tarsus spurring this on. A great persecution arose and the believers scattered from Jerusalem. So you had the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem and, and, and others, believers, they scattered uh, through the region. And they went out preaching. And Acts 11 indicates that most went out preaching. They were Jews. They went out preaching to fellow Jews. But then others preached to Gentiles also. It was a way of getting the message out to the rest of the world. So even though persecution is unpleasant and in and of itself you don't welcome it, you realize it can be used for good. It gets us more dependent on the Lord. It, it, it gets us living in, in reality to a godless world that we're here to serve with the gospel. Another thing that early Christians could teach us is that every member of the body counts and that there is no such thing as biblically-based spectator Christianity. Now, it's true that when the believers in Jerusalem could meet in the temple, that, that they could meet sometimes in large numbers and they could listen to Peter teach or others teach, but for the most part, the vast majority of their meetings were, were in houses Right, You had a house big enough maybe to get 20, 30 people, and you do that. Maybe five, six people could be. They met in different settings. They did not have anything uh, called church buildings. They didn't even have their own messianic synagogues at that time, from what we can tell. So they had their meeting places, their places for gathering together, generally in homes. You know, Paul writes in Romans 16, to the church in someone's home. He said, the church in the home? How can you get a building in home? <laughs> the church's not a building. So the whole spectator Christianity— where, where the main expression of your spiritual devotion each week is to go to a building, to hear a, a worship team sing, to listen to a pastor preach, and you go home. And that's the main expression uh, 
of your of your your week spiritually, the main spiritual expression, that's sadly lacking. I, I love big meetings. I love them. I love preaching to large crowds of people. I love it. I, I love the presence of God in worship as you worship with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. It's wonderful. It's glorious. It's awesome. I love how in, in one moment you could, you could like spark a movement. You know, I mean, you get so many people in one place and fasting, praying, crying out. You can speak a word and they go out and let's lay our lives down for a dying world. It's beautiful. It's powerful. But when it's our main weekly expression, as opposed to the main focus being being the body and every member of the body being important, thank God for pastors. Thank God for anointed teachers. Thank God for anointed worship teams. And yes, we don't just w- watch them sing. And in some places we do, but properly we enter in with them. They help lead us into the presence of God in worship. Wonderful, beautiful. But that's only a little portion of your week, right? How, how many hours in a week? Right, seven, seven times uh, seven times 24. So, so what is that? 168 hours in a week. So two hours out of that maybe are, are spent going to a church service, you know, there and back and going to the service. And that's the main spiritual expression. No, it's living our faith out in everyday life. And, and the reminder that the church is the people, not the building. And then I believe a fourth thing that, that they would tell us is we need the power of the spirit. We need the power of the Spirit. For the early church to function without the power of the Spirit would have been utterly unthinkable to them. He was such an active part of everything that they did, played such an important role in their personal lives. Read through the book of Acts. Read, read through the epistles. It's the, the presence of the Spirit, the importance of the Spirit is, is everywhere, everywhere. Uh, A.W. Tozer years ago said that if the, the Holy Spirit left the earth in, in the days of the early church, of the work would stop, and everyone would notice it. They'd notice the absence of the Spirit. He said, if the Holy Spirit left the church today, speaking in particular, I would say now the church in the West, 95% of the work would continue unaffected. Nobody would notice it. The early church would remind us we need the power of the Spirit if we're going to see the advance of the gospel. 866-34-TRUTH. I wrote an article Last night, it's getting a lot of attention on different websites about Samaritan's Purse. Samaritan's Purse. The left's message to Samaritan's Purse, you cannot be Christian. So this is Franklin Graham's organization, Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, Franklin Graham, outspoken evangelist and preacher of the gospel, who also weigh on political things as well. Some wish he wouldn't, some think it's important. We'll put that aside. But he's made clear that he and his organization hold to biblical values concerning marriage and sexuality. These are pretty foundational. So Samaritan's Purse is is humanitarian, Christian doctors, nurses, healthcare givers, volunteer their time, give their services. They became best known for helping Ebola victims in Africa some years back. So they set up an emergency camp in New York because New York City was overwhelmed. And they're going to be able to treat, what was it, 68 beds, 68 people. And, and again, they're risking all the workers. They're risking getting infected themselves, risking getting sick, risking death. Okay? So they're getting protested for it. They're, they're getting protested. You've got gay activist groups protesting them. Protesting them. Why? Because they're hateful. Mayor de Blasio, yeah, we need to find out what these, or exactly what these people do or who they are. What's a, it's a mystery to you who Franklin Graham is in Samaritan's Purse? Really? Seriously, sir? With all respect? I know it's a big world out there, but 
Franklin Graham, pretty well known. What's the issue? Well, they hire Christians. And they have a statement of faith saying marriage is the union of a man and a woman. That's it. And they serve it. They serve everybody. Everybody, 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 without discrimination. So what the world's saying is, you can't be Christian. If you want to... if. If you serve everybody, don't discriminate against everybody. That's not enough. You can't hold to Christian values. Friends, we've been warning for years for a reason. Uh, Someone, a gentleman named Philip, tweeted out uh, in response to my article. He tweeted just a a word of of thanks to me and said, Dr. Brown, thank you for your voice on these issues and for your continued wake-up calls to the church. Hey, Philip, I appreciate you thanking us. We get appreciation like that day and night. It's what we're here to do, friends. It's what we're called to do. It's what I'm seeking to do. Let us not be asleep in the light, friends. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire, 866-348-7884. A little later in the broadcast, I want to get into a just-released eschatology survey. One of my friends, Mitch Glazer, and some colleagues Chosen People Ministries, some others, sponsored this survey of evangelical and historically black denominations in America. I believe they surveyed about a 1,000 pastors. So that was just released today. I want to share some of that with you a little later in the broadcast. Again, if you have a question for me, if you differ with me on something, oh, come on. Well, somebody who differs with me, call. Well, one of the critics who attacks me online or the people that you know post and attack and snipe, call me. I, you see, when we're online, uh, 99% of the time, if not 99.9% of the time, I don't have the time to engage in a back-and-forth debate or dialogue. And it's not the best setting for, you know, to endlessly tweet back and forth. But I would love to. I would love to. I love to debate and dialogue and discuss. And when I see things posted that are false, my desire is to immediately correct them. Okay, but it's not the time and the place. And with the the good social media following that we have, by God's grace, that we try to steward well and serve well, that, you know, I'd be buried for decades. You wouldn't hear from me again, except for being buried in some social media disputes and discussions in the midst of the hundreds of thousands of of comments that come in over, over a period of weeks and months. So. But my desire, though, trust me, is to rebut and correct and set the record straight. Not for pride's sake, but for truth's sake. Uh, but I, I've had whole shows where I've invited critics to call. And a whole, given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Weeks and weeks on end, and it doesn't happen. So anyway, I, I give the opportunity afresh. 866-34-TRUTH. Before we go to the phones, let me address this issue. In the New Testament, a false prophet is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Jesus in Matthew 7 warns about them. He says in Matthew 7, beware of false prophets. You know, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they, they are dangerous. They, they, are, uh, they are ravenous wolves, all right? He gives that warning. They, they are not sincere people 
who made a mistake. They, they are not sincere leaders, godly leaders who made a mistake somewhere. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, what about someone who claims to be a prophet and prophesies falsely? Do we call that person a false prophet? Well, if they, in fact, are not believers, if they, in fact, are wolves in sheep's clothing, then yes, we identify them as such. But otherwise, we simply say you are falsely calling yourself a prophet. I'll give you an example. Someone says God's called me to teach, and, and they're opening up the scriptures, and they're butchering the Bible. Now, this person's a believer, all right? They're a believer, but they say, you know, the Lord's anointed me to teach. He's called me to teach, and, and they're butchering the scripture. Do I call that person a false teacher? Not if they're a believer. As I understand, a false teacher, 2 Timothy 2, is a non-believer who leads people into condemnation with their false doctrine, all right? If somebody's just not interpreting the Bible well and not using right principles of teaching and they're falsely calling themselves a teacher, I'll say, you're not a teacher. You're falsely calling yourself a teacher, but you're not a teacher. But if they teach heresy, you know, like Mormonism or something like that, or, or, or some blatant denial of the gospel, then I'd say you are a false teacher. The same way if someone's claiming prophetic gifting and prophetic power and is a deceiver and a charlatan and a fraud, then I would call that person a false prophet. But if someone says the Lord gave me this word and, and, and he showed me that on, that on Sunday there's going to be a rainbow over the entire United States and that rainbow is going to signify peace between the Democrats and Republicans, well, Sunday happens and there's no rainbow over the entire United States and there's no peace between Democrats and Republicans. I won't call that person a false prophet unless I know for sure that they are not believers, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. But I would say you're, you're, you're not a prophet or you're falsely claiming to be a prophet or you're prophesying falsely. This, this is one of my major grievances with, with critics and hypercritics. By critics, I mean people that I find to be honest and with integrity in their differences and hypercritics, those that I find to be dishonest or deceptive or lacking in integrity. So this is one of my great issues with them. In the New Testament, it says that we should not put out the Spirit's fire. We should not despise prophecies, but we should test everything and hold to the good. And, and that's First Thessalonians 5, First Corinthians 14 says two or three prophets should speak. The others should weigh carefully what is said. So that means it's said, and someone might say, we, we affirm this as what the Lord is saying. Or it may be that three prophets have the same word, and there's a deviation on one part. It's like, well, we, we feel sure three, three of us all heard the same word simultaneously. We, we believe the Lord's speaking this, but we have to pray more about these other parts of it. It, it has to be discerned like that. All right. And, and even Old Testament prophecy, I can give you examples where it doesn't come to pass mathematically, where God blatantly says A, B, C, and then A happens, part of B happens, and then a C. And then many, many years later, part of B and C still hasn't. But the people were known to be true prophets, so the words are preserved for us. Okay. This is not just some simple two plus two equals four in every case. And sometimes it is that simple, other times it's not. So there were prophetic words that we highlighted some weeks back saying that come mid-April, April 15th, 16th, the end of Passover, that there would be a clear shift, that we would go into another phase with the virus, and that there would be a diminishing of the virus. Well, on the one hand, on, on those very days, April 16th, there were announcements about plans to reopen the country, people talking about the next phase, all right? So there seemed to be some truth to that. But what about that there would be a diminishing of the virus beginning mid-April with the Passover season? Well, I just saw a headline today, 
And this headline said, U.S. coronavirus deaths top 45,000, doubling in a little over a week. And, and then the article says at the beginning uh, that the, the numbers were the highest. Uh, let me just go down. U.S. deaths increased by more than 2,750 on Tuesday alone, just shy of a peak of 2,800 deaths in a single day on April 15th. So April 15th, the highest day. Now we're right behind it. And, and here we are today, April 22nd. So that did not happen. That did not happen. There has not been a diminishing that began on that day. Nor am I surprised that it didn't happen. I hoped it would. I mean, we all want to see the virus diminish. We all want to see people getting back to jobs and getting back to health and things like that. Of course. But didn't happen. Well, they're a false prophet. No, that doesn't make someone a false prophet. If someone is a servant of the Lord, a lover of Jesus, a born-again person, and they prophesy something falsely, we hold them accountable for that. We don't stone them. We're not in the Old Testament, okay? This is different now. New Testament, everyone can potentially prophesy, and we all have the Holy Spirit living within us to bear witness or not to prophetic words. It's important we understand this. So I will question another word from that person. In other words, their, their credibility will go down. And I will say that prophecy, that part of it at least, if not all of it, but that part of it was false. There may be other parts of it that were true. But I'm not going to brand the person a false prophet if they're a brother or sister in Jesus. I'm just trying to use biblical terminology, friends. I'm trying to be a word person. I'm trying to be faithful to Scripture. In the Old Testament, false prophets either prophesied in the name of another god. That's pretty serious or they prophesied falsely in the name of the true God to encourage people to continue to sin. I've written on this extensively. My Jeremiah commentary in the 23rd chapter and elsewhere got into it extensively, taught lengthy classes on the prophets and have gotten into these things in depth. That's what false prophets do. They lead you to follow another God, or they encourage you to practice sin and say that God is fine with it. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. But you can be a true believer and get something wrong prophetically. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? We prophesy in part. He also says we know in part. So I have a question for you. Is the Bible God's perfect word? Yes. Is it lacking in any way? No. Does it tell us everything we need to know for life and godliness? Is the scripture sufficient in that regard? Absolutely yes. Do we all understand it perfectly? No. We have different denominations. We have different groups. We, we argue endlessly, be it about the end times, be it about Calvinism versus Arminianism, be it about the gifts of the Spirit for today, be it arguments between Catholicism and, and, and Greek Orthodoxy or Eastern Orthodoxy and Protestantism and then Jewish roots and, and the place of baptism. And we have the perfect, we have the perfect word of God. We have the Holy Spirit living within us as our teacher, and yet we still differ. And some of us over the course of a lifetime realize, you know, I taught this for a while, but I think it's wrong. I think this is the better way to understand it. And we make an adjustment in our thinking. And yet we don't brand every teacher out there that we differ with a false teacher. Should I brand all non-charismatics false teachers because I'm charismatic? Should I brand all Calvinists false teachers because I'm not a Calvinist? Shall I brand everyone who teaches infant baptism a false teacher because I believe in believer baptism? Shall, shall I brand everyone that doesn't believe in historic premillennialism a false teacher because we differ there? 
Or should they all brand me a false teacher because I differ? No, in the same way, in the same way, because someone, maybe in sincerity, maybe under pressure to come up with something, maybe out of their own desire, maybe misinterpreting a dream, they come up with something that's false in a prophecy, they should be held accountable, and we should say that was false. But we don't brand them false prophets who are there for wolves in sheep's clothing and charlatans and frauds, unless, in fact, they are charlatans and frauds, be they teachers, be they pastors, be they so-called prophets, be they whoever. Friends, let's be biblical. We're destroying each other with this stuff. Let's be biblical, and let's hold people accountable for public prophetic words. We'll be right back. Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Let me proclaim it nice and loud. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. No matter what the storm, no matter what the crisis, no matter what the craziness, Jesus is Lord. Always true. Always true. No matter what is happening in the world around us, He is Lord. We worship Him as Lord. It settles our hearts. It reminds us of what really matters, reminds us of who we are and where we are going. 866-34-TRUTH. I'm going to the phones momentarily. Then after that, we're going to look at an eschatology survey that was just done. thousand or so pastors interviewed about their views on the end time. So we're going to look at that momentarily. It was just released by some of my colleagues earlier today. But before that, uh, I have been doing a series now, this is week 10, going through the book of Proverbs. Now we're doing it uh, subject by subject. It is an amazing book, Proverbs, as you know it. And it is being done exclusively for our monthly supporters, our torchbearers, and our Patreon supporters. Those helping us just with pennies a day, literally pennies a day, $10 or more per month can become a Patreon supporter. A torchbearer, which comes with more benefits, is, is a dollar a day or more. But right now, difficult times. Let me just present this to you. To become a Patreon supporter, you get two bonus videos a week. So right now, I'm going through Proverbs. We've been through Hebrews. You say, well, those, will those ever come out as courses? Yeah, they will as courses with study guides that, that people will pay for. All right? But here you get them as your bonus each week, plus a YouTube chat, exclusive YouTube chat, that you get each week as a Patreon supporter. So go there if you can, join our team. Our goal is to have a 1,000 Patreon supporters that will enable us to do so much more to be a blessing and help to you. We're at a little over 200 right now, but each of you that's joining with us, thank you. And we'd love to get this material to you. We have thousands of hours of free resources on our site, as you know, and our daily show, Free for All, as you know. But we also have some special things that we make available to those who support us. So patreon.com forward slash Brown. Not only will you help us reach a whole lot of people and have treasure in heaven, but you get two bonus videos a week. All right, to the phones. Let us go to uh, Mosias in New York. Thank you for holding and welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Mr. Dr. Brown. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you, sir. 
Um, I'm calling. I just want to um, ask your question. I am. I'm not a Bible scholar, but um, there are some things I just want to get clear. Um, I saw um, a debate. You and some Jewish, some Jewish guys. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys were debating um, Isaiah 53. The Jewish guy told you that um, the Messiah is Israel, right? But no, no, no. He he said Israel, that this, that he didn't say the Messiah is Israel, but that Isaiah 53 speaks of Israel, not the Messiah. Okay, exactly. That's what I'm saying. But yeah. um, the Bible deal with symbol, right? They call um, Israel in the Bible is the one that struggle with God, right? So if Isaiah 53 is no, 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 Israel, no, no, Israel as a nation is not the one that struggled with God. That was Israel, the individual, Jacob, the individual who struggled with God. Israel, the yes, nation, uh, is not known as struggling with God. It's Jacob, the individual, yes, no. who struggled with God. That's, that's what it was, Jacob. But they yeah. changed his name to Israel because they said he is the one that struggled with God. Right? Right, but that's for the individual. That doesn't describe the nation. That describes the individual. Yeah, because even in ancient days, the land they call Israel today, they never call it Israel. Because if we had to, if Christ, if Jesus Christ said he came here for the lost children of Israel, meaning he is Israel, he is the Messiah. I look at him, he's saying that I am Israel, I'm here for my people that are lost. I don't know. That's the way I looked at it. Yeah, so, so to, ex- again, yeah, yeah, to, to, to explain, Jesus is an Israelite. Yeshua is an Israelite. All right? He fulfills the destiny of his people. His people were called to be a light to the world and to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. The nation fails. The Messiah fulfills the mission. But if you look in Isaiah 49, he is called Israel as an individual, but his mission is to the nation of Israel, which is then emphasized. He is called to the tribes of Israel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And yes, the physical nation, the place called Israel. Hey, thank you, sir, for the questions. I do appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Isaac, somewhere in the Southeast United States, for strategic reasons, not telling me more. Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Dr. Brown. I appreciate it. Um, I actually was calling because I'm I'm in a bit of a situation... um, involving my pastor of my church, been a member of my church for years. I'm actually a deacon as well. Um, but what, what's going on, and I'll try to make as brief as I possibly can because there's a lot of information. My pastor is, is friends with a gentleman who is currently running for a political position in the county, mm-hmm. local political candidate, it's specifically sheriff, which has a lot to do with this. He was sheriff for many years before. However, uh, many years ago in 2012, this gentleman, as sheriff, was caught taking a woman he impregnated to get an abortion in a sheriff's vehicle. He was caught speeding on the highway. Became big, big news. Everybody talked about it. Mm. Turns out he impregnated the same woman, again, not his wife, twice. I don't know if they ever actually had a child or if both of them were aborted or what happened. Either way, it was a big ordeal. He publicly apologized. 
sought forgiveness. Everybody thought it, it, you know, moved on. And that year he was elected sheriff again. 2016 rolls around. Again, he was up for election. It came out that he has been, these were serious accusations. The office never acknowledged it, but the accusations came out that he was sexting, texting a woman in the sheriff's office, again, not his wife, a lot of very lewd and, and very sexual text messages. Um, the sheriff's office never addressed it. The sheriff himself never addressed it. They, they just kind of just stopped talking to the press, pretty much refused any comment about the matter. He then lost the election that year to a, a different gentleman um, who's been sheriff since 2016. Election's coming up again. The previous guy is now running again for sheriff, the one who lost in 2016 and had all these issues. Yep. Um, now it's his election. Problem is, given all this, my pastor is still very, very publicly supporting this previous sheriff. Um, so he has the sign in his front yard, which is the parsonage, which is right next to our church. He also regularly shares stuff on Facebook, um, publicly supporting him and everything, usually sharing the posting by the, the sheriff. Um, right. Sheriff's like public Facebook page or the sheriff, the candidate's Facebook page, right. I guess. So, so Isaac, um, um, let, let me just jump in and ask you a couple of questions. Yeah. Uh, no, number, number one. Uh, does your pastor believe that this man has truly repented and shown fruits of repentance? I honestly don't know. According to what I have talked to him in the past about it, he only brings up the 2012 incident with the, you know, being caught right, by the right. woman and all that. Um, and, and said that, you know, he publicly sought forgiveness and everything, talked to pastors about it and all this. Right. Okay. All right. And then if this fellow was a, a church member known as a godly man, you knew his family well, and the pastor was supporting him, would that bother you that the pastor was getting involved politically if you thought this guy was a, a solid guy? To a point, yes. I okay. I have a problem with the sign in the front yard because it's the parsonage. And no, no. All, all clear. All clear. Yeah. So. Okay. Uh, right now, your situation is whether you can remain in the church, whether you should uh, approach the pastor humbly but strongly. My, mine, my, my issue is, is whether or not I should be approaching the pastor. I've sought wisdom from many different people in my life, parents, other pastors I know, everything. And th- different ones have given me very, very different. Um, yeah, so different, my, different my, my counsel, if, if, if I were you, all right, obviously— you, you honor authority, be it your earthly father, mm-hmm. be it uh, the police officer that pulls you over, be it the judge in the court, be it a pastor. So I, I, yeah. I, I believe you understand that. That's, that's a given. But if I were you, I would, uh, after prayer, I would absolutely ask for a serious one-on-one appointment. I would say, you know, speak of your honor and appreciation for him and your love for the church and your desire to serve, and that's why you're a deacon. Um, you know, out of love for the people, out of love for the Lord. But this is a very painful situation because according to everything you know, this man has been compromised. Uh, there's been a steady pattern of sin that's brought reproach to the gospel because it's now associated with this pastor in church. And it, it makes it very difficult, you know. Uh, and 
it, it now muddies the water in terms of the gospel because this church now not only stands for Jesus, but stands for this sheriff. So I would make a humble appeal for him to step back from his public support and ex- explain the situation. And his response should be very telling in terms of how he responds to you uh, should really, really indicate uh, what you need to do. But Lord, I pray that you give Isaac wisdom. You know all the details. You know the truth. May, may truth and wisdom, grace prevail in Jesus' name. Hey, thank you for, for asking for our counsel. That's what I would tell you. Uh, hey, just quickly, uh, Michael in Arizona, uh, Mormon prophets, how would I look at them? I'd look at them as false prophets because they are in a false religion and they are claiming inspiration from God in the midst of a false religion, found it by a false prophet, Joseph Smith, who claimed revelation that did not come from God. So if they are part of the Mormon church as leaders, then they understand the doctrine. Therefore, they are part of a cult. And if they did prophesy or even had things accurate at times, I would brand them absolutely as false prophets. Absolutely. There'd be no question in my mind. I wouldn't hesitate for a split second. And a Mormon teacher uh, teaching Mormonism. We're not talking about someone that is in the church where they doesn't understand what they believe and maybe has actually heard the true gospel elsewhere and they're still in the church they don't really understand, but someone that understands, someone that knows the doctrines, Mormonism is a heretical cult that will not lead people to the true God, to the true Savior. So Mormon teachers would be false teachers, Mormon prophets would be false prophets. Simple answer there. Hey, Michael, I want to make sure I got to that before the break. Thank you for asking. You may know Roman. It's the line of fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Friends, don't forget, my new book is out. The ebook is already available. You can get it on Amazon, and you don't need to have a Kindle reader. Just download it for your smartphone or tablet or computer. When the World Stops, Words of Faith, Hope, and Wisdom in the Midst of Crisis, we are getting great reports, which I'm blessed and humbled by, great reports from readers now who are getting the manuscript in their hands, now the book in their hands. God stirred me March 18th with the idea well, I wasn't sure. Was it the Lord? Was it just an idea I had? I bounced it off some folks. It's a crazy idea, but I'm feeling to get a book out now in the midst of the crisis. It was March 18th. The book was published April 21st. How's that? Written and published in a month. That's grace. About 200 pages long. You can get the ebook when the world stops. You can order the paperback. Uh, it is going to be shipped very, very soon because it's happened so quickly. The printing is, is just catching up with things now. The audiobook should be out any day. Okay, um, I want to look at this survey. Pastor Views on the Return of Jesus Christ, Biblical Prophecy, and End Times. It was a survey of 1,000 pastors from evangelical and historically black denominations uh, by LifeWay Research. Historically black denominations would be more conservative, but not always called evangelical, so kind of fitting together there. Sponsored by Chosen People Ministries, Alliance for the Peace of Jerusalem, Rich and Judy Hastings, and the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. So, 
uh, phone survey that was done, questions asked, samples about 1,000 people, all right? And margin of error, plus or minus 3.2%. So 56% say their church has a stated position. Let's scroll down a bit, Kai. 56% say their church has a stated position on the sequence of end times events. So that's interesting. It's a little over half, but that's all. You would have thought it would be higher, but maybe it's not as much of a focus in terms of a stated position on the sequence, exactly how end time events are going to unfold. Okay, 64% say their church does not require staff to hold specific end time beliefs. So one third said they do, almost two thirds said they don't. In other words, this is not something we divide over. Um, Now, out of those surveyed, 86% attended Bible college or seminary. And I wouldn't fit in there because all my schools were secular, right? My my, uh, bachelor's and master's and PhD were all secular universities. But here, so high percentage attended Bible college or seminary. Now, 70% of those who attended Bible college or seminary took a course on eschatology. So this was something that the large majority of the schools taught. And then, as far as a position on the millennial kingdom, do they believe that it is a spiritual kingdom, the millennium is a spiritual kingdom between uh, Christ's ascension and his second coming? He's now reigning spiritually. It's amillennialism. Or postmillennialism, that the world would become more and more Christian until the whole world is Christian, and then at the end of that, after that, Jesus comes. Or that there'll be a future literal 1,000-year period during which Jesus reigns on earth following Christ's second coming, often called premillennialism. Some are dispensationalists, ultra pre-true rapture. Others like me are not, but we are premillennialists. So 60% said that premillennialism best represented their views. 60%. 21% held, held to amillennialism. 9% held to postmillennialism. Postmillennialism was much more popular for some time before the wars of the 20th century, when it did not quite look like the world was getting more Christian. So still, 60%, almost, almost two-thirds, held to premillennialism. 83% say they hold strongly to their beliefs. So 57% very strongly, 26% somewhat strongly. So that's interesting, that they're, they're pretty firm on their beliefs about the millennium. 47% say that premillennialism best describes the views taught in their Bible college or seminary. So this is telling us, this is telling us that in seminary, Bible college, they did not have as much teaching on premillennialism, but do hold to it now. Just a, a small difference there. 59% say their views on the end times have not changed since finishing school. So what? 41% said they have changed. So that would, that would give the discrepancy. Not as many learn premillennialism in Bible college or seminary, but more hold to it now. 57% say that their current views on the end times match a majority of their congregation's views. So, yeah, you would expect that. I would expect the number to be even higher. But if they don't emphasize it that much, then the congregants will have more of a diversity of, of views. 60% believe preaching end time prophecies from the book of Revelation is important. So that's assuming that prophecies in the book of Revelation are all future and and that a lot of it is not referring to past events. Interesting, right? 60% believe preaching end-time prophecies from the Old Testament is important. I I don't don't think these numbers 
for that surprise. And maybe I'd expect them to be a little higher with some of our end-time focus. 57% say that spending time studying eschatology is important, but I'd like to see that number higher. Only because there's so much in the Bible about it. Even if we are not the last generation, or if the generation before us wasn't, or the generation before that wasn't, there's still something important about understanding the end times as far as living today. So that number is lower than I thought it would be. But interestingly, 89% say that communicating the urgency of Christ's return is important. So what they're saying, that's important to preach, but studying eschatology is not as important. That's interesting, isn't it? 64% said it's very important. 25% said important. Very, very interesting. It wasn't mean the urgency of Christ's return, that he could come at any moment or that we should be ready when he comes. 97% agree that Christ will literally and personally return to earth again. That's good to know. The heresy uh, that he will not return bodily, the heresy that is included in full preterism, that there will be no future bodily return of Jesus. So glad to see that that is not taking in the body. 97% agree that he will literally and personally return to earth again. Ninety. Now, here's an interesting one. 94% feel equipped to teach on future prophecies rather than the Bible. I think that number is too high. I'm just giving you my opinions here on a survey. I think that number is way too high because I don't believe most have really studied it adequately. If only 57% feel it's really important to study eschatology, then how can 94% feel equipped to teach on it? Ah, Oh, yeah. This is showing some very interesting things. 27% agree that interpreting the end times is a divisive issue within their congregation. That's because most of the people would be in basic harmony, but obviously, you've got diversity of views and you don't teach out on all the time, there's going to be disagreement. 70% agree that the modern rebirth of the state of Israel and the regathering of millions of Jewish people were fulfillments of Bible prophecy. I'm glad it's 70%. I'm sad it's 70%. In other words, I'm glad that it's still the clear majority view, but notice only 50% strongly agree, 20% somewhat agree. Those are not good numbers. That means we need to do a much, much better job of teaching what the scriptures say. 69% agree that the modern rebirth of the state of Israel and the regather of, regathering of millions of Jewish people show Christ's return is closer. But his return has been closer every day for 2,000 years, right? So significantly closer, right? How much closer? Those would be big questions. 98% agree that sharing the gospel with Jewish people is important. Glad to see that. Praise God. That's good to see. Uh, 57% agree that the Bible teaches that one day most or all Jewish people alive will believe in Jesus. That's interesting that this over half. I don't know what I would expect from that. But it's saying that Romans 11.26 and other passages will be literally fulfilled, that there'll be a turning of the Jewish people to Jesus at the end of the age. 59% believe that Jesus will return when the Jewish people accept Jesus. That would go hand in hand. National turning will bring the Messiah back. I personally believe that. 40% believe that the Christian church has fulfilled or replaced the nation of Israel in God's plan. Yeah, that's a shame. But it's good that it's only 40%. 24% strongly agree. Sorry to see that. But hopefully the number's going down, not up. My concern is it's going up, not down. 39% agree that the establishment of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem is a sign of the end times. Yeah, it's important, but a specific sign of the end times. I don't know where I get that scripturally. 
62% say another temple will be built in Jerusalem in accordance with Ezekiel 40 through 48. Ooh, does that mean a millennial temple? Because Ezekiel 40 through 48 is going to be a glorious temple. That's not going to happen before Jesus returns. So the third temple that would be rebuilt would ultimately be one that could well be the Antichrist tries to set himself up as God there if Second Thessalonians 2 is meant literally. But that's interesting that they believe, I'm assuming a millennial temple will be built. Uh, 73% believe that Christ will return and reign in Jerusalem in fulfillment of God's prophecies to King David. Sorry, it's only 73%. If he's coming, why is he coming back to Jerusalem? Why Jerusalem, right? 56% expect Jesus to return in their lifetime. Yeah, and depending on your age, you think it more when you're young and less when you're older, normally. In which of the following ways, if any, does the soon return of Jesus the Messiah impact your life and behavior? Those who expect Christ to return in their lifetime, 96% I seek to live a holier life. 93% I pray that Jesus would return soon. 92% I share the gospel more often. 88% I pray for Israel. 63% I give more money away. 16% I don't make long-term commitments. So I'm, I'm glad that it's not affecting long-term commitments because it's part of life here on this earth. Uh, which, if any of the following describe reasons why you believe it's important to share the gospel with Jewish people, 99% it's important to share it with everybody, 89% Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, 82% Jewish people are special in God's sight. Does it say, though, that Jews without Jesus are lost? Not in the list there, but that would be the number one reason. I guess it's, it's in keeping with the first point. And anyway... Uh, go to Chosen People's Facebook page, Chosen People Ministries, to find out more about this survey. And one thing we know for sure, Jesus is returning, and we should be looking for that return and living godly lives in anticipation.